Let's pray. Gracious Father, I ask that your word would be exalted tonight. That your word would be exalted on Sunday morning. That your word would be exalted in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions. You have exalted your word with your name. Your word is God-breathed. Your word is pure, refined seven times on the ground in a furnace. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and bone and marrow and revealing the secret things of the heart. Your word is life. Lord, grant me to be a faithful instrument of your word. Help me, I pray, to speak it in compelling and powerful and Holy Spirit-enabled ways now. Get through massive strongholds in people's lives that have kept them from hearing the truth of the word and loving the word and yielding to the word and obeying the word and exulting in the word and following the word and eating the word and being satisfied by the word and going to heaven with the word. Get through, almighty God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, instead of moving quickly forward into chapter 6, it has seemed good to me that we should linger one more time in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John in order to ask a question that I think raises an issue that is massively important to the Gospel of John and to all the other writings of the New Testament, namely, how did Jesus and how did the apostles view the Jewish scriptures, the old, we call it the Old Testament. And what did those scriptures have to do with Jesus? And what difference does it make for us? So that's the cluster of questions that we will tackle. And the reason it is so fitting that we pause here to do it is because of two verses. First of all, verse 39. John five thirty-nine. You search the scriptures... Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You're right to seek eternal life in the Scriptures, and wrong to find it anywhere there but in me. Now, the term Scriptures, you see that phrase? You search the scriptures. That's a reference to the Jewish scriptures. We Christians have a section of our Bible that includes those scriptures, and we call it the Old Testament. And the reason we call it the Old Testament is this. We believe that the Messiah, the longed-for, expected Jewish Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus, and he came to die for sinners so that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, 
If you believed in the Messiah and his work on the cross and his resurrection, you would become a true Jew. You would be folded in to the promise made to Abraham and this covenant that he makes by his cross, he called the new covenant. He lifted up the cup that we just did, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, that's a phrase taken from the old covenant, from the Jewish scriptures, Jeremiah 31, 33, that it would come someday. A Messiah would come, and, and he would be bruised by the Father, and many would be accounted righteous in him, and he would rise from the dead, Isaiah 53 we believe that's happened and that the writings that he authorized through his apostles unfold the new covenant. And therefore, we have a section in our Bibles called the New Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant mean the same thing. Old Testament, Old Covenant mean the same thing. So we love the Jewish Scriptures. We're Jews. It doesn't, it's not lost on me, if any Jewish people are here. It's not lost on me that I'm a Gentile and I am coming into this inheritance late. And I have no natural warrant to be here at all. I am a wild olive branch. That's what Paul calls me. Jews are natural olive branches. They belong in the tree. They belong in their Messiah. And only through unbelief are they broken off. I don't belong in the tree. I shouldn't be benefiting from Abrahamic promises, but I am. Why? Because the Messiah, when he died, opened the door wide to Jew and Gentile so that if they would believe in him, they would be grafted into the Abrahamic line, namely Jesus, and become true spiritual Jews and therefore inherit all the promises made to Abraham and all the other prophets and It's amazing when you read the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Isn't that wonderful? That's the only reason any Gentile is saved. That's the only reason. There isn't a separate way but the Jewish way. Salvation is of the Jews, period. The only way to be saved is to become a Jew. So, Paul said in Galatians 3.8, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In you, in you shall all the nations. You've got to get into Abraham in order to have salvation. So we Christians don't reject the Jewish scriptures. Oh, no. We embrace them. We love them. They are sweeter than honey to our lips. They are more precious than gold. Yea, much fine gold. Because in preparation, they point 
all of them to Jesus, whom we love above all things. And in illumination, they keep shedding light after light after light on the meaning of what he did. You can't know much about what Jesus accomplished if you close the Jewish scriptures. Now back to John 5.39. You search the scriptures. I've just been meditating with you on the word scriptures. You search the scriptures. Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying, this is staggering. Jesus is saying, all the scriptures bear witness to me. No qualification, like some of them, the scriptures bear witness to me. Now verse 46. If you believe Moses, now Moses is the author of the first five books of the Jewish scriptures. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Ponder with me for just a moment the implications of the word witness in verse 39. You search the scriptures, it is they that bear witness. What does witness mean? It's used 42 times in the Gospel of John. Nobody uses this word as often as John uses this word. It's a big word for John. What does it mean? Let me just read you a few verses and you'll be able to tell me what it, what it means to John. John 1.34, John the Baptist says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John chapter 3 verse 11, Jesus says, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. John 3.32 he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John 19.35, he who saw it has borne witness. We all know what a witness is. He doesn't argue that the crime happened. He saw it. He stands up in the court and says, I saw it. I know it. I'm not giving an argument. I'm a witness. Now. What does it mean then when it says, the Scriptures witness of me? What does it mean? Well, Scriptures can't see. They're just words. So, I take it to mean that God, who breathed out His Scriptures... 2 Timothy 3.16, God who breathed out his scriptures saw Jesus. He saw his son forever. He's been seeing his son in heaven forever. And he saw, played out in his own mind, the entire history of redemption, the Jewish part, the Christian part. He saw it all and wrote it down. 
really quite breathtaking. The witness to Jesus is pervasive in the Old Testament. Let me give you a quick survey, because I know, I know, if, if you're like me anyway, you're thinking in a certain category right now, and it's, it's inadequate. And the category is, okay, show me a few places. Like, he was born in Bethlehem, right? Micah. Give me that verse. Okay, now I can see there's, there's a prediction and a fulfillment. That's the way everybody's thinking when they're thinking about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Well, that's true. It's just wholly inadequate to answer verse 39 and verse 46. The Scriptures witness to Jesus. Now, let me give you just a run-through of the rest of the Gospel of John to show you how pervasive the witness is. John 2.17, Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple, and he quotes Psalm 69.9, His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. Second, in John chapter 6, Jesus reminded the Jewish people that their fathers had eaten manna in the wilderness. And then he applies it to himself and says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the manna is about Jesus. Third, John 6.44, Jesus teaches that nobody comes to him unless the Father draws him, unless the Father draws him. And then he explains by saying, this means each person who comes to me has been personally taught by the Father to come. And then he quotes John um, Isaiah fifty four thirteen, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the prophets point to how people get saved by Jesus. Number four, John 7, 38 compares the Holy Spirit to living water flowing out of the Christian Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart flow rivers of living water. Maybe he's referring to Isaiah 58. There's no sentence in the Old Testament that says out of his heart flow rivers of living water. Maybe he's referring to Isaiah 58:11. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And maybe passages that compare the Holy Spirit to water in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Number five, John seven forty two, the enemies of Jesus draw attention to the fact that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and you weren't born in Bethlehem. They don't know. They think he's from Nazareth, period. So they're accusing him. You can't be the Messiah. And so Micah 5, 2 is quoted by the enemies, and in a roundabout way, Jesus gets vindicated because he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem, just like Micah 5, 2 says. Sixth, John ten thirty five. Now, this is one of the most important statements in the Bible about the Bible, coming from the mouth of Jesus. Referring to Psalm 82.6 about sons of God, 
Jesus adds this little phrase, and the Scripture cannot be broken. That is one of the strongest claims by our Lord to the infallibility of the Bible that there is. The Scripture cannot be broken. And we know he's referring to the entire Old Testament. It's not out of character for him to talk that way. Listen to Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, the smallest teachings of the Bible will come true. None of them will fall to the ground. That's Jesus talking. Number seven, this is the most astonishing, the most sweeping statement about the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament that exists. Listen to this. In John 12, 37 to 41, John quotes Isaiah 6. He's quoting verse 10 of Isaiah 6. But then we know the most famous part of Isaiah 6. Remember, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then he gets to verse 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And John, in verse 41, says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. So take a deep breath and see if your heart will yield to this. Isaiah manifestly is beholding the glory of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And John says, Isaiah said that. That's what he said. Because he was looking at Jesus. From which I conclude, wherever God is manifest in the Old Testament, Jesus is manifest. Everywhere. Not in little pieces. Like Micah 5.2. Isaiah 9.6. Zechariah 13 and a donkey. Yes to all of that. This text says, when a prophet sees God, he sees Jesus. When glory from God Almighty is manifest, Jesus is being manifest. The Scriptures witness 
They have seen the glory and they witness everywhere to Jesus. Everywhere God is acting, Jesus is acting. Everywhere God is being manifest, Jesus is being manifest. This means that the way the Old Testament gets people ready to know Jesus is not merely with specific prophecies that they can then spot. Ooh, look where he was born. Or, ooh, look, he is wearing a certain kind of clothes. Ooh, look, a, a, a dove came down. It's way more than that. The Old Testament gets people ready to meet and know Jesus in this way. If you meet God, know God, admire God, trust God and are shaped by God as he truly reveals himself in the Old Testament, you will know Jesus when he shows up because you will have already known Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus when he shows up, you never knew God. That's the whole structure of John's argument in this book. Number eight, that was John 12. Now, number eight, from chapter 13 on, John pours it on with the Old Testament to show that all the details are planned by God, scripted by God, predicted by God. Chapter 13, verse 18, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, Psalm 41, 9. John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause, Psalm 35, 19. John 17, 12, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled, Psalm 109, 8. John 19, 24, they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots, Psalm 22, 18. John 19, 28, Jesus said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst Psalm 69, 21. John 19, 36. Not one of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34, 20. John 19, 37. Another scripture says, they will look on him whom they've pierced. Zechariah 12, 10. And finally, John 29, 20, verse 9. As they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Psalm 16, 10. And besides all of those... This book is saturated with indirect allusions to the Old Testament. Those are quotes. And then there are allusions. And then there's everything in the Old Testament. So these layers, allusions that are indirect, prophecies and predictions that are specific, and pervasive revelation of God, which is a revelation of Jesus, the whole Old Testament is a revelation of Christ. Now earlier I said, or if I didn't I meant to, I can't remember whether I did or not, the implications of this are huge. So they are. For you and for everybody you know who claims to know God and may not. It's extremely, these implications that I'm going to draw out as we close, these implications are highly controversial in a relativistic, pluralistic, religious culture 
where it is considered arrogant to suggest that if someone claims to know God, they may not. Which is what Jesus does repeatedly. There are three implications And uh, the assumption behind them all is this, and I think we've seen it. The revelation of God in Scripture and the revelation of Jesus in Scripture are so united, are so one, that what you make of one defines what you make of the other. So what you make of God will reveal what you make of Jesus. And what you make of Jesus will reveal what you make of God the Father. That's the assumption behind these three implications. Number one, and I'll just make this very personal for you here. Do you know God? Do you know God? John 8:19 is your test. Jesus says to those who claim to know God and were his adversary, or they said to him first, "Where is your father?" Now they're 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 calling him a bastard because they knew Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph. Where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And he's shifting categories on them. If you knew me, you would know my father. They don't know Jesus. They're rejecting him. Therefore, he says, you don't know God. This is what got him killed. Saying to the most religious people on the planet who have the Old Testament memorized that they don't know God is highly inflammatory. And that's what he said. Because everything I've said up to this point in this sermon is help you understand that when God was revealed in the Old Testament, Christ was revealed. And if Christ shows up and you reject Him, you never knew the revelation of God. Test number two, implication number two, do you honor God? The first one was, do you know God? John 8, 19. The second one is, do you honor God? Ask yourself right now, do I honor God, the maker of heaven and earth? Do I honor God? Here's your test, John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Father and the Son are revealed in Scripture with such union, such unity, that if you dishonor the one, you dishonor the other. And dishonor means not speaking nicely about him and denying who he is. Honor him means recognize he's the Son of God, crucified for sinners, 
risen from the dead, reigning in heaven, coming again, Lord of the universe. That's the way you honor the Son. And if you reject any of that, you don't honor the Son and therefore don't honor God, no matter what you say or how much of any Bible you have memorized or how much you go to church anywhere or mosque or synagogue or tree or shrine or Baptist church. Number three. The first one was, do you know God? The second one was, do you honor God? And the last one is, do you love God? So ask yourself right now, do I love God? Do I love Him? I think that means, do I treasure Him, cherish Him, admire Him, cleave to Him, want Him, long for Him, pursue Him? We know what love is. Don't, don't reduce love to doing right things. There are many people who do right things and don't have a stitch of love for God in their hearts. Do you love him? And here's your test. John 5, 42 and 43. I know that you do not love God. You do not have the love of God within you. How does he know that? Verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That's how I know you don't love God. So here's the summary. You can test yourself. Do you know God? Do you honor God? Do you love God? And the test is Jesus. 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 Because the entire book of God is a revelation of Jesus. And when you see the glory of God in Isaiah 6, you're seeing the glory of Jesus. To say, I see the glory of God and I love it, and here's His Son, and I don't love Him, means you never saw it. It was just fire. It was aesthetic. It was chill bumps. It was guilt relief. It was community. And you may be Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, spiritualist, animist, or Christian. And not know God. You can belong to all those movements. You can belong to all those churches. You can go to all those services and memorize all those catechisms and learn all those doctrines. The measure of all true knowing of God, honoring of God, and loving of God is knowing, honoring, and loving Jesus for who he really is, namely God. Therefore, Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, therefore born again, 
grafted in beneficiary of the promises of Abraham, love the whole Bible. Don't stiff arm the Jewish scriptures. They are gold. God is being revealed. And when God is being revealed, Jesus, our Savior and Lord and friend, is being revealed. I believe one of the reasons why there is such thin Christian discipleship of Jesus today is because we have ripped the vision of him in the Old Testament out of the Bible. We think the Old Testament is just too tough. And we need some fiber today in our love for Christ. The whole Old Testament vibrates with a kind of depth and strength and weight and solidity without which you can't know how to follow Jesus. It's just so sentimental. Just ripped out, plucked out, reinvented in 21st century emotional categories. Not Isaianic categories. Mosaic categories, Malachi categories, Amos categories. Let yourself be shaped by these massive realities in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus shows up saying things that will just knock your socks off, you will say, that's my king. I recognize that. I smell that. I've smelled that for centuries. What a God. What a God. This Jesus is. Love your Bibles. The whole Bible. And Jewish people, we love your Bible. Would you love your Messiah with us? We're just happy to be Jews. Let's pray. Almighty God, I so long to see more of Christ everywhere. So open my eyes to see you, Father. Your glory everywhere. And know that when I'm seeing your glory, I'm seeing the glory of my King, my Savior, my Messiah. Yes, my, Gentile, my Messiah. And I pray for those in this room may have never thought about how integral Jesus is to the whole Bible and how Jewish our salvation is and how precious the Jewish scriptures are, that they would lean in on this, Lord. Lean in. Learn more. And that they would yield to the authority of the whole Bible Lord Jesus, exalt yourself now as we close in your holy name. Amen.